when I arrived at HHS, all the awards were going to individuals. When I left, it was all going to teams. And people said to me, their ability to work across the department on teams were the most important experiences in their careers. Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurton, president of the Academy. This month, as we focus on recognizing and honoring public service, I'm chatting with some of our Academy fellows who've had amazing careers. In this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Donna Shalala about her incredible and unusual career journey. Donna, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you have done so many things, it was hard to figure out where to start. So I thought I'd just start at the beginning because your first job out of college was as one of the first volunteers to serve in the Peace Corps. What or who inspired you to pursue that path? Well, I I think it was John Kennedy, but the truth is that my senior year of college, I had spent a semester, the Washington semester at AU and uh, fell in love with politics, but I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. I did my undergraduate work in history actually. And so I applied to lots of different things. I applied uh, to graduate school in public administration. I applied to medical school. I applied to law school. I mean, and I applied to the Peace Corps and I laid all my acceptances out on my bed. I remember exactly what I did. My roommate was hanging out. She said, how are you going to make a choice? I said, I'm going to ask one question. What's the greatest adventure? And I decided the Peace Corps was the greatest adventure. And so I joined the Peace Corps not having a clue, yeah, sort of had a general idea. I was one of the, in the, one of the first Peace Corps groups. They weren't very well organized, but, but I got in and three days after graduation, I was off in Peace Corps training in Round Rock, Arizona with the Navajo Reservation. The training itself was an extraordinary experience. I also remember my parents were absolutely opposed to my going to the Peace Corps and I had picked a Middle Eastern country, just hoping my family would be more sympathetic. I picked Iran. I had a choice between Turkey, Iran, or I think Morocco was going to go later. And I picked Iran because it was the most interesting of those countries. My grandmother finally intervened. My family is Lebanese and said, she's going to the old country, let her go. And she gave me this letter. Here's what I remember. She gave me this letter to give to the head man of the village. I had no idea what it said. I threw it in my suitcase. We had an extraordinary experience in Peace Corps training. As I indicated, the Peace Corps was disorganized in 1962. But we went from the Navajo Indian Reservation to, to Utah State University to learn Persian and learn about the Iranian culture. And then by August, we were off to Iran to get our assignments. And I'll tell one story. I, so I found that letter. So we arrived in this mud village where we were going to work with a new agricultural college. And I said to the three uh, Peace Corps volunteers that I was stationed with, hey, I got to go find the headband of the village because I got this letter from my grandmother. And so I went off. The headband of the village was actually the mullah. And I handed him the letter and he started laughing. And I had, I didn't read Arabic. My grandmother wrote this beautiful classical Arabic. And he said, do you know what this says? And I said, I have no idea. 
Here's what it said. It said, this is to introduce Donna Shalala, the daughter of a great sheikh in Cleveland, Ohio. Please put her under your protection. Wow. (laughs) And he did. And we became great friends and uh, got a lot of things done in the Peace Corps. It was an extraordinary experience. When people ask me what my favorite job was, it was being a Peace Corps volunteer. I was probably better at that than anything else. It was a real adventure. It made me a citizen of the world imbued in me a sense that Americans, no matter what age, could make a difference. And it taught me some life lessons about listening and about multiculturalism and a a lot about how people around the world uh, felt about the United States. And, And how did it shape your future career goals? Well, you know, I wish I could say I had a clear idea after the Peace Corps I actually followed a boyfriend of mine to graduate school. He was going to Syracuse. He hated it. I loved it. And of course, I met the greats there, the great leaders of public administration. Scotty Campbell became my mentor. And uh, George Fredrickson was there. Uh, I mean, some of the biggest names in public administration were there. Now, I didn't go to study public administration. I wanted to study politics and economics. But we all took courses in public administration. I actually took two courses on the TVA, which I was interested in because I had met Gordon Clapp and David Lilienthal in Iran because they were building a big dam. But Syracuse ended up shaping my career. Even though I really wanted to be a journalist, I ended up being an academic after the Syracuse experience. And you spent a few years in academia, but public service called you back and you served on the Municipal Assistance Corporation that was saving the city during the 1975 New York fiscal crisis. Tell us about that experience. Well, that actually came out of my academic field. I had written about the politics and economics of New York State and about the fiscal relationships between the state and the city, about fiscal home rule. And when the governor was elected, Hugh Carey, I went and helped along with the transition And he said, do you want to join the administration? I said, no, I don't even have tenure. I was teaching at Columbia. He said, well, I'll find something for you to do. And he called me the summer of 75 and said, what are you doing this summer? I said, well, I have a Guggenheim. I'm going to write a book in the fall. What do you have in mind? He said, well, New York City looks like it's going bankrupt. He said, and everybody's going to think I'm appointing you to Big Mac, the Municipal Assistance Corporation, because you're a woman. He said, I called around to find out who knew the subject matter. And the guys at Syracuse said that you had actually written your dissertation on fiscal home rule. And he said, that's exactly what we're talking about here. So you're going to need to educate these investment bankers about New York state politics and specifically about what the state can do in terms of helping the city from a financial point of view. So I got appointed there. And from there, I I did go back to Columbia, but Jimmy Carter called. He was looking for women, and a friend of mine had turned down the uh, assistant secretary for policy at HUD, and she had recommended me. So I interviewed a couple of places. I interviewed in the White House with Stu Eisenstadt, and I interviewed with Pat Harris at HUD. Pat offered me the assistant secretary's job. Stu offered me a job on his staff, which was also interesting to me, but I decided to take I was a very young assistant secretary. They don't appoint assistant secretaries, but they were so desperate for women that they were slotting us all over the place. And it was an opportunity 
to really see the federal government from the inside. I knew state and local government. I didn't know much about the federal government. So that's a long explanation for how I ended up there. Well, I'm really interested in how you pulled that state and local perspective into your responsibilities as an assistant secretary at the federal level. I think one of the things we're challenged with today is we've lost a lot of that expertise in our federal government. Well, you know, we have. And Maxwell used to provide, it was called the Maxwell Mafia, lots of the federal employees. Astrid Murgat, mm-hmm. who was my great friend from graduate school, and we had written together, she was at Barnard and I was at uh, Teachers College, came down to help me do the transition. And she literally called the Maxwell Alumni Office and got the list of all the alums that were at HUD. And she called them all in because our predecessors had left our offices empty. And she called all the Maxwell people that were at HUD and they all showed up. There must have been about 20 of them. Wow. From different generations. And they made a list of what I needed and also gave me all their telephone numbers. And I basically worked the Maxwell. It was also the era of the beginning of the presidential management interns. Mm-hmm. And each of the assistant secretaries were asked to run a group. In my group was Sean O'Keefe. <laughs> the Maxwell Mafia lives. <laughs> the Maxwell Mafia lives. So I took advantage of all those Maxwell people while I was there. And of course, a whole generation of people were going into the federal government. The presidential management intern program was really important. And I think it still is in many ways because it allowed people to lateral in and a lot of MPHs had a chance to lateral in. Mm -hmm. But I think I was a very early member of the National Academy of Public Administration out of my HUD experience. I don't even remember what year I was elected, but I do remember when I got to HHS, everybody was, the civil service calmed down when they realized I was a member of the National Academy. (laughs) I'm glad we could vouch for you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you've moved back and forth between government and academia. Did you find that those paths reinforced each other, were challenging to manage, you know, gave you extra benefit and extra insight? I think it gave me extra insight. It's an American, it used to be an American tradition that academics would move in and out. I, I think there's not so much anymore of that, though people go and get faculty appointments, but for tenured members of faculties to go in and out is not as much, uh, you don't see as much of that as you did in my time. Yes, I think particularly running world-class research universities, there is not a better preparation than a college presidency for being a cabinet officer because you deal with multiple cultures. I once said that I understood conceptually HHS because I had run the University of Wisconsin at Madison in which the deans were very powerful. And each of the subunits, the law school, the medical school, the school of education, arts and sciences had their own cultures. That was true of FDA, of CDC, of the public health service, of children and families, of the welfare system. So conceptually, I understood from a management point of view that I was dealing with different cultures and I had to use the budget process and other things to bring people together. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, we've just verified that you were elected a fellow in 1976. Oh, good. 
1976. And I went to HUD in 1977, from 1977 to 1980, just, you know, the Carter administration. So it was the year before I went, I went to HUD. You had a remarkable career by that point, but there's so much that happened after that. I mean, you were the longest serving secretary of health and human services, and there are so many firsts in your, in your background, the first woman to helm a big 10 university, you've been elected to national office. As you kind of think about all of the different experiences, what would you consider your most significant accomplishments across that space? Probably the people I worked with the very talented people over the years. My skill set is not that I'm the most brilliant person in the room, but my ability to hire first-rate people that know more than I do and wield them into a team. We had a lot of fun. We had fun at HUD, but we really had fun at HHS. And uh, it was the era when the president let you pick your own team. I eventually got John Callahan to come and run uh, uh, management and budget and personnel uh, for me who had been a classmate of mine at Syracuse. And he's had a long public career in public administration as well. But I think it's, it's both my ability to mentor people, to give people opportunities, to pay attention to junior people. I, I just, at heart, I'm a teacher and a mentor. So it's not just, I mean, I could talk about the policy development, about the fact that kids were healthier and wealthier at the end of the Uh, Clinton administration, I could talk about doubling the NIH budget, but it's not those things as much as people and our ability to demonstrate that we could pull in the civil service and respect them along with the political appointees. When I left HHS, I said to someone, because we had big conference rooms and I always had a lot of people and I've never had a meeting with just political appointees. I I couldn't remember who were the political appointees and who were the civil servants. The other thing we did was we worked people together as teams. When I arrived at HHS, all the awards were going to individuals. When I left, it was all going to teams. And people said to me, their ability to work across the department on teams were the most important experiences in their careers. So important. Speaking of teams, I know you, you've also worked in the nonprofit sector. How do you see the collaboration between government organizations and their nonprofit partners? Well, uh, my first experience with that was at HUD when we came up with some suggestions and we had some money. We wanted to develop a program to help senior citizens repair their houses so they could stay in their houses. And we had some money for a demonstration, but we needed support. So we went around the country to different community foundations and asked them to partner with us on the big demonstration in a neighborhood they would pick. So I had a lot of experience working with the private sector and particularly with foundations on combining things. I remember, this is a small story, the American ambassador to Vietnam begged me to send him a health attache, a health person, because mm-hmm. the Vietnamese government wanted to do two things. One of them was a virtual public health administration school, and they wanted to develop, be able to produce their own vaccines. 
But that required that we had someone on the ground. Well, the law didn't allow us to do anything except to help the handicapped in Vietnam. And there was just, it was just difficult to do anything else. And I explained that to him. And he said, well, go get, get creative. Well, we got very creative. I got the Rockefeller Foundation to pick up the salary of a CDC doc whose wife was Vietnamese. He had served in Vietnam. He spoke Vietnamese and he stayed there for almost seven years and helped them develop those projects. But that kind of combination. And then I went, everybody said I was going to get in political trouble with the Congress, but I went to John McCain and told him what I was going to do. And he said, Don, I got your back. That sounds like a great project. And eventually he and John Kerry changed the law two years later, but, but we worked both the politics and it was a very important contribution to public administration, to health administration in Vietnam. Well, finding those flexible and adaptable solutions is a skill set all its own that requires a really comprehensive understanding of how all the pieces fit together. But also a lot of experience. One of the things I've said to uh, to people is you're staying in jobs too long. I don't want you to bounce around every two years, but I want you to make sure when you do move that you're going to learn something new and add it. I've never taken people from one job to another with me because I'd have to worry about whether they could adjust or not. I'm very nimble and I, I love new jobs, but I do know what it takes to put a team together and to make sure it's diverse, but not just in terms of race, everybody focuses on race now, but in terms of economics, because you need people at HHS, you need people that grow, grew up in poverty. You can't hire everybody from the Ivy Leagues. You've got to, get people of different backgrounds because you're dealing with a multifaceted population. And I pointed out to someone the other day, one of the heads of one of the major agencies that I appointed had rickets as a child. And she was just very important in our policy discussions. Bob Williams is a great public administrator who's totally disabled and spoke through a computer who ran our disability programs, was the disability policy guy. He was very important to have at the table on every issue. So diversity has to be has to be both experience and background. It can't be just race. That is such an important insight as we you know think collectively about how to diversify, especially our federal civil workforce. But every level is thinking about bringing exactly what you just said, the right people to the table, so that you you're considering the the perspectives of the people who will be impacted by the policy you make. When we did welfare reform, the president asked us at HHS and all the agencies to hire welfare recipients in our entry-level programs. And we had a tough time working with Washington, D.C. to identify people. So we sent out a memo to the civil servants in the department and said, if you have a family member that's on welfare, that you believe could be helped by a a job in the department, will you please call personnel? And uh, one of the things we were assured that if we did hire that person, the family member that worked for us would keep an eye on them. And we did a lot of training. We, We hired a large number of people, and many of them we got from our own employees in terms of recommendations. 
What a great story. What a great impact. And as we think about, you know, bringing people back to work now after the COVID recovery, are there practices like that, that you think we should be thinking about proactively to bring back the long-term unemployed, the the folks who need to be reskilled? Yeah. And we have to be particularly careful about people that quit their jobs, like women who quit their jobs and need a way to get back into the system. Now their kids are back in school. Universal childcare is going to help a lot. Universal preschool pre-K education. And I think Joe Biden is really going to go after that tonight. He's going to talk about that. Yes, but it's we've got to just be creative. We've got to train people on the job. We've got to work with community colleges to get people trained on the job. And we've got to be willing to take some risks with people. And the supervisors are absolutely critical in this discussion. You can't, people ask me all the time to be their mentor. And, you know, you can't manufacture that as much as you can, making sure you have the right kind of fit for people. But we're going to have to identify jobs and create opportunities for people and get everybody employed. Getting back into the workforce is absolutely critical for the mental health of our society, if not anything else. Absolutely. Um, so I'm curious, you know, with that sort of as an example, how did you take your breadth of expertise in the federal government and how did that inform your agenda while you were in Congress? I don't think I had as much fun ever than I did in Congress because it's all policy. You don't have a huge staff to organize. I had eight people in Washington, two thirds of them did policy. So it was really relying on years of expertise on different subjects as well as being educated by the staff, by lobbyists, experts in the area. So for me, it was like going back to academia because I could learn new subjects and try to influence policy. And I specifically volunteered to be on the rules committee because in the House of Representatives, rules sees everything. So I got a chance to both introduce amendments as well as help people And I love telling, there's a small story that gives you an idea how your background can have an impact. A conservative representative from the Midwest came in with an amendment to rules, and it was to the Defense Appropriations uh, uh, Authorization Bill, the Defense Authorization Bill. And here's what it was. He was a West Point graduate. He sat on the board of West Point, and they were having trouble keeping their faculty because faculty, civilian and military faculty, couldn't keep their own copyrights. They belonged to the government. Now, if we had done that with the NIH, uh, we wouldn't have been able to keep anyone. So my sheet said, vote no on this. And I started to ask him a couple of questions. And I was sitting next to Jamie Raskin, who had been a professor at uh, American University. And I turned to everybody, I said, we're gonna vote for this. I said, they get, they're having a turnover problem at the military academies. You couldn't hire someone in higher education at any of the universities I've been at if we were going to take away their copyright on their articles or books. And everybody smiled, chuckled, and everybody voted for it, Republicans and Democrats. That member of Congress who was very conservative became a very good friend. He was so devastated when I lost my seat. He came up and said, I just want you to know that I just... I tell everybody the story about 
how do you help me? What a great story. We don't get great stories about collaboration out of Congress very often anymore. So thanks for sharing that one. <laughs> well, and Donna, I know you are not sitting idly by. What's still on your agenda for things you want to accomplish? Well, you know, I still want to influence policy, particularly health policy in this country. And I'm sitting on commissions, a bipartisan commission on bioterrorism, a new one on the opiate epidemic that the bipartisan organization has put together. So I'm, I'm still going to be very active and I'm back teaching. I'm teaching in the MBA program at the university, the healthcare track, health systems and health policy. And so I, I want to make sure that I worry about the next generation as well. And so many of my students end up going into public administration as well. And of course, I'm a loyal Syracuse alum. So anything they ask me to do, I'm on the Maxwell Advisory Board. Anything they ask me to do, I'm, I'm happy to do. So as you're growing this next generation of public administrators, what advice are you giving them about you know, their careers, their, their Well, plans. the best way to teach is to tell stories. So one of the things they always ask me is, how do you run a big department? And of course, I've written articles for the Public Administration Review on exactly that subject. What do you do when you run a department? My first year at HHS was a very important lesson because I was trying to figure out how to get NIH to talk to FDA. I mean, they did on very specific scientific things. So I made everybody sit in everybody's budget presentation. And then I did an exercise that I had learned actually in public administration. And that is I made everybody do the budget for the department. And at the beginning, everybody gave themselves money. A few years down the pike, they were finding the overlap and they were giving each other money. But it was, a, it was an exercise to try to pull people together. Now, only an academic would come up with that. <laughs> only someone trained in public administration would think about how you create a team in a, in a huge department. And you do that by putting teams together to solve problems, by making sure that when you have a meeting, everybody's invited, including the interns, and everybody feels like they, by using exec sec to wheel people together. I mean, there are lots of ways to do it, but I used exercises. And I've always used them as ways of pulling people together. Well, I think there's so much that we can learn from all of the things that you've shared with us today. You have had an amazing career. I want to thank you on behalf of the Academy for your contributions to public service. And we look forward to seeing what you're going to do next. Oh, thank you very much. I love the Academy and good luck. Thank you. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new podcast from the Academy. We'll be talking to Academy Fellows each week about the challenges facing public administrators at every level of government as we try to make government work and work for all. Thanks for listening.